Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, imagine learning your last name wasn't supposed to be your last name, but it was because of murder and escape and scandal. Hi, it's Fisher, and it's an astounding story from Kevin Miller, who's written a book about what he's learned about his family. Hear what he discovered, how he found it, and all the details this week on Extreme Genes. Brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you have found us. America's family history show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this week's show is brought to you by BYU TV's Relative Race, Sunday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific. In fact, later on in the show, we're going to be talking to Jen and JD. They are Team Black, and what an emotional episode they went through this past week, and you're going to enjoy our visit with them. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the show. It's great to have you along. Also excited today to be talking to Kevin Miller. Kevin has written a new book, and it is based on his incredible family story from when he discovered that his last name wasn't really supposed to be Miller, but his grandfather changed it back around 1921 because of a murder in his family and a family scandal, and you will not believe what he discovered and how he discovered it. You're going to enjoy that coming up in about 10 minutes. Hey, just a reminder, if you haven't done so yet, sign up for our weekly Genie newsletter. It is absolutely free. We've got links to past and present shows, stories that you'll find interesting as a genealogist, and of course, I give you a blog each week, too. You can sign up at ExtremeGenes.com or through our Facebook page. Right now, it's time to head off to Boston, Mass. Massachusetts, where David Allen Lambert is standing by. Hello, David. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good, but I hear you're doing a lot better. So what's about this breakthrough three decades old? You yeah, found? 35 years I had been looking for a breakthrough on third great-grandparents on one line. And uh, I learned a couple of things from this. This is really interesting. I think it would be of interest to people who are frustrated with brick walls. You know, like I say, <laughs> I've waited since the 80s to get this. But I have been administering six different people, including three second cousins on this one particular branch. And a fourth cousin match came up out of Australia recently that tied in to five of the six of us, including a shared relative from England who shared these third great-grandparents. And so we discovered as a result of that that there was another child belonging to my third great-grandparents who was born and christened about 36 miles away from the rest of the family. And as a result of that, yeah, that gave us the, uh, the actual maiden name of the mother. And then we found her christening and her parents, and we found the dad's christening and his parents. So we got back another generation on both sides. There was also another person who descended from this extra child who matched Mm -hmm. two of my second cousins. So this was a a huge thing for me. And, And what I got out of it was that you really need to try to administer as many tests from as many cousins within close range to you as you possibly can, because sometimes they will get matches that you're not going to get or your siblings aren't going to get because I, I was administering for me and a brother and a sister and then these three second cousins. So as a result of all of this, we were able to
able to put it together and finally get that breakthrough. I was up till one o'clock in the morning on Monday night, <laughs> and it well, just that's exhausted. Typical for a genealogist. That's kind of early, isn't it? Like two thirty in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's not unusual. I make most of my breakthroughs late at night, and that was no exception. But it was huge. And the other thing to learn from it is be patient because I was working on this in June, and there was no mm-hmm. record that showed the christening of this uh, extra child. Until sometime this summer, it showed up on Ancestry. It's not on Family Search, so you got to look in different places and see where they are. But these new records are coming along constantly, so it was quite a joy. And the people that I'm matching to in Australia are all excited about it. The match over in England is all excited about it. All of us over here are excited about it. So we finally uh, got to where we needed to be. All right, David, let's get on with your family histoire news. Where do you want to begin? Well, this story I want to tell you about actually has to do with a DNA match. Holly Becker, who's in her 40s now, over 20 years ago, was suffering from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She actually got cord blood, which aided with her recovery. Well, her ancestry DNA test that she did recently led her to find that she still has, after 20 years, the umbilical cord blood from the donor, a 25-year-old Patrick Davey. So I guess that makes you kind of like blood brother and blood sister. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of crazy. And I think the thing that's wackiest about this is the idea that what if you had a close DNA match to somebody who was involved in a cold case? Right. I mean, this is something we've never, ever seen before. So maybe that's the question for C.C. Moore at some point on the show. But uh, I, I would imagine, obviously, they have to match people's actual DNA up to a crime scene. But this raises some very interesting questions. Wow. It really does. And I think that it just goes to show you that when we thought we'd found everything we could use DNA research for, there's another. Yep. Well, I'll tell you, DNA is being used in the next story for extreme genes, and this is about bone fragments from a famous lost aviator. Yep, Amelia Earhart is in the news again. And this is because Dr. Aaron Kimmerl, who is with the University of South Florida, has discovered bone fragments that were in a museum that probably could be Amelia Earhart. So there is a living niece of Amelia Earhart, and obviously they'll probably be able to test mitochondrial DNA, or at least any part of that DNA to determine if she may have found this aviator we lost in 1937. Wow. Yeah. And you know, that story has been going on since I was a little boy. <laughs> it's been a long time. In fact, I had an uncle who was a part of the Navy exploration team that was looking for her back in those wow. times. Yeah. And that's uh, a story in its own right. In, in its own right. That's true. Well, I'd like to shine my blogger spotlight this week upon Amy Carpenter, who has a blog, musingsofayounggenealogist.weebly.com. And one of the things that she blogged about this year, which is fascinating, are the five reasons to go to a genealogy conference. Because I want you to go to her blog. I'm not going to give you all of them, but I'll give you three. Education, camaraderie, and perspective. Go to her blog and find out what the other two are. Well, that's all I have for Family History News this week. I'll catch you next time. All right, David. Thanks so much. And uh, coming up next, we're going to talk to a man who learned later in life that his name was not his name. And that's because his grandfather had changed it. And it involved murder and scandal and escape. It's an amazing story. And you're going to want to hear it all next from the author of a book about this whole experience, Kevin Miller. And you know, we're always looking to dig up the stories for you to inspire you to go out and find yours. And one of those stories is now made historic in a book. 
Written by Kevin Miller, my next guest. It's called Heart of Steel. It's based on a true story. And uh, uh, Kevin, we, we want to know the real story here because this is just phenomenal. Now, you were an Air Force guy, right? Yeah, Fisher. I spent eight years in the Air Force, serving my country. Those are great years. I had a good time. And then I woke up one morning and learned that my name isn't actually Miller. You know, we thought we were, wow. our name was Miller and learned that it wasn't. Uh, what, what happened was my uncle was at a, a funeral and he got some newspapers that he then passed to us that uh, detailed a scandal and a murder back in the 1920s. And my grandfather had changed our name from Puchalski, very Polish name. We had no idea. My father had no idea that that wasn't our name. So we kind of learned it through that newspaper article, and we were having an identity crisis. So, like, so you, who, the you know, name who was, are we? So the name was changed to Miller. Mm-hmm. Wow. To Miller. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a big change. That, that's a huge change, and, and and we spent. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why, because my grandfather took all this to the grave. He he didn't share that information. He didn't share a lot of information. And we believe because of the scandal and stuff that was involved, he was just trying to protect his family. Did you know him? When did he pass away? Yeah, I, I knew my grandfather very well. He passed away in 1986. Okay. Um, but um, I was very close with him, and, and he was a good he was a good man. I, I, I didn't know him as well as I thought I did, though. <laughs> Isn't that the way I, it is? You notice that? Yeah. Everybody's got oh their secrets. He was an incredible man. I mean, they lived in a farm, a big farm in Southington, Ohio. Okay. And uh, and one night, my great-grandfather was murdered in his sleep. <gasps> and he was 12 years old, and my frantic great-grandmother sent him to get the sheriff. And a big scandal unfolded, and my grandfather and his four siblings found themselves in an orphanage in 1920. All right, wait a minute. Let's break this down a little bit at a time. Sure. Your great-grandfather yeah. is found murdered in his bed? Is that right? In his bed. He was murdered in his sleep. He was shot in the temple while he slept. Wow. Um, yeah. And there was a you know, big story. And this is, this is where the, uh, the, the newspaper articles come in, because the, uh, the Warren Tribune, the newspaper at the time, chronicled this story over the course of, a, of about a week, week and a half. So the okay. story just kind of keeps adding more stuff to it. And, and, and there's so much detail in there that uh, it, it just, it's intriguing. You know, it's incredible. So today, of course, the assumption is mm-hmm. probably somebody close to him did it. And so it kind of starts from there yeah. until the, uh, the next of kin are, are kind of taken out of the picture. Then they start right. to look for other people who knew him, people who didn't know him. What was the, the order of things as they kind of tried to solve this case in the press? Yeah, the order of it, I mean, initially what, what the story was, and try not to give too much away, give too many spoilers away for the book, but what happened was my great-grandmother was tied and gagged, um, and then she sent my grandfather to get the sheriff. Well, when they came, she claims there was three men that pulled up in the middle of the night, tied her up, and held her at gunpoint, and then stole $600, some accounts say $500, from the farm so, and then took off with it. And then they shot my great-grandfather, you know, after they stole the money. Wow. That was the story that she shared with the sheriff and, the and, you know, the law uh, enforcement of the day. So they mm-hmm. started investigating this thing and breaking it down and finding different clues. And, and the story starts to take a little twist here and there, and, and some re- revelations happen and a scandal breaks out. And that's how my grandfather finds himself and his siblings stuck in an orphanage in 1920. Wow. So mom's out of the picture now. 
Yeah, they're on their own. They find themselves on their own. And the orphanage that they're in is, in 1920, that's not a really good place to be. This is like the Shirley Temple Orphanage, right? You know, where everybody's mean and they just yeah. tell them everything to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. You have. I mean, yeah, they, they were very strict. You know, as a Catholic, they had nuns and stuff there in the oh, day. And, and, you know, and it was it was a very strict orphanage. So my grandfather decided at 12 years old, he's running away with the intent that he's going to go find a job and come back and and take his siblings out of the orphanage and, and take care of them. And that, that's that's part of what. Wow. That's part of what impresses me about my grandfather so much at such a young age, because he hopped a train and he, he made it to Chicago. He didn't know where he was going, but he <laughs> ended up in Chicago. He found a job in a steel mill as a bar catcher. He lied about his age, I'm sure. He was sure. 12 Got to do what you got to do, right? Yeah, and then he kind of gets taken in um, by a couple there, and he kind of finds his way into bootlegging, you know, just right, running liquor to 1920s, and he makes enough money <laughs> to go back yeah. and get his siblings out of the orphanage and takes care of them. Now, wait a minute. Now, so how that, does he do that? Because when he left, he's only 12, and I'm sure when he goes back, why didn't they just take him back into custody? Well, he he um, he kind of avoided all that. I mean, he kind of did it on the down low. He didn't. Um, he snuck them out. I mean, he was able to to communicate with his siblings. You know, he, he you know he called the orphanage and, and and he was able to kind of arrange a method of of getting them out of the of pulling them out of the orphanage and uh, and just stealing them away. Wow. So. Yeah, and this and a lot of this. I mean, in the book, I mean, I have the book as historical fiction based on a true story because I talk about all the stuff I know for a fact, and then I fill in the areas exactly. that I don't know that I have to in order to pull the story together and to get at the flow and and make it a good story. And I've done that, so, and you're absolutely right. You know, you yeah. have to kind of interpolate what they may have said to each other, right. what their motivation may have been. And, you know, a lot of books are written that way, a lot of historical novels. You know, they tell you the real story, but they fill in the yeah. gaps, and I, I, I don't find anything illegitimate about that at all. Yeah, because it's, it's like I, I know this event happened, but how did it happen? Sure. You know, yeah. and find all facts about it that I can and then give my interpretation or use my own imagination to figure out how, how this must happen. Put myself in my grandfather's shoes and in his mind, right. basically, and trying to live that and trying to imagine, you know, what he must have been going through at such a young age. Incredible. Um, but he was the patriarch of her family and... Everybody, all his siblings, everybody always looked to him. You know, he was that strong person that, you know, everybody, my, my, I know my great uncle Frank, his younger brother, when my grandfather passed, he just said, you know, I don't even want to live anymore. And that Stanley's not here. Oh. You know, it's just, you know, that, that's how much they loved him and, and adored him. And he was just that strong man that never complained. He died of cancer and he, he never complained. I, I got that when I was in the Air Force. I flew up to Wright Patterson for a class, so he flew me up to the cabin there. I visited with him. I had no idea he had cancer because he, he, he never complained. He would never, never complain about it, and, and it wasn't too much longer after that that he passed away. So you said at the beginning that it was at his funeral that you got these old yellowed newspaper clippings. Who handed those out to you? 
It, it was. Uh, it wasn't actually at Granddad's funeral. It was a, a, another funeral of another relative, but okay. it was some cousins. It was cousins of ours, cousins of my dad and my uncle's, like second cousins of mine, who had come up to my uncle and said, "Hey, um, you might want to read these articles," <laughs> because they had been doing some research and a little bit of genealogy and, and trying to track, you know, their family. And the person they had working on it discovered these newspaper articles, handed them to my uncle, who then passed them on to us. Oh, wow. At the time, he didn't, he didn't tell us what our name was. We're like, Uncle Rick, what's our name? You know, we're having an identity crisis. So we're, so we were don't these, know who we are. Were these then online articles that had been pulled out, or were these actual original articles that had been saved? These were, these were um, original articles and copies. I took a visit back to Warren, Ohio, a few weeks ago with my dad, who's 86, and my brother, to just try to see what else we could dig up. And we went to the library, and, and we were able to pull out even more newspaper articles related and printing them out, you know, so I've got more of that stuff there. And also, I wanted to find the farm, you know, because sure. we didn't, I asked my dad, I said, hey, describe the farm to me, because I need to describe, and he couldn't. But what he did is he handed me a stack of documents that he didn't know, realize what all was in there, I don't think. And the documents, in the documents, they auctioned off the farm and everything on it, you know, to, I guess to help pay for the the orphanage and, and oh, everything wow. else that was going on. So I had a, a, an inventory, which gave me a good description of the farm. But we didn't know the exact location. So, we, st- I, you know, we went to the Trumbull County uh, Recorder's Office to find the deed. I found the deed. It doesn't have an address, but it has a legal description. And so it wasn't until I got back from Ohio, I was working with a historian at the Warren Historical Society, great lady named Cindy, just, you know, awesome lady. She was so intrigued by the story. She says, we normally charge $18 an hour to do this. I'm doing this for free. Yeah. Just because I'm so interested in this story. And she sent me she sent me a plat map from 1899 because I knew the lot number was 43 off of the, the deed that I found and the legal description in the plat map matched to a T. So I, so I, I was Perfect. able to identify exactly the 98.5 acre farm. So it was a huge farm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, is it still there? Is it still farmland or it, is it all developed? It, it is still there. And I, I plan on taking another trip back there because I want to go knock on some doors over there on the property because there's like several houses on that property now and just maybe hand them a book and say, hey, you know, I'll give you a book if you let me walk the property and take some <laughs> video. And by the way, here's some history on this property that you're living on. Yeah. I mean, what a story, right? Yeah. By the way, you're in a house where my great-grandfather was murdered. Was murdered. Exactly. That'll get somebody's attention, especially at this time of year, you know? Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I know you kind of uh, shoved me aside on that in the beginning here, Kevin, but I'm thinking for it to be a scandal, somebody in the family had to have done this, right? Um, yeah, you would be right to say that, Fisher. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where it's going. Um, my great-grandfather, he was the good old boy in Southington, Ohio, and he drank a lot, and he was very abusive. He beat my great-grandmother repeatedly. She oh, lost wow. six children. Um, she lost six children to this because of this? Six, six pregnancies, yeah, were lost because of his beatings. He was very violent, very cruel, very cruel person. And then he started beating my great-aunt, Dorothy. Once he started beating the daughter, then that's kind of where the murder takes That was it for great-grandma. She'd had enough. Yep, she had enough. She probably was thinking, whatever you do to me, you do to me. But when you're touching my child, that's where you cross the line. So she took care of it. Uh, Wow. Okay. She did it personally? The actual story is that she 
conspired with a brother-in-law who actually took the money that she said was stolen. Oh, wow. And they... <laughs> They showed up on the farm middle of the night drunk. The, the first night they'd gotten lost, so they're kind of bumbling a little so bit. They got there, a lot. The they're not really good at this. Fortunately, they're they not were, real experienced. They, okay. They weren't good at it. And the next day, she signaled them with a flashlight. They came in, and actually, Frank Oliasiski, who's charged with the murder, as well as my great grandmother, his hand was shaking. And she actually had to steady his hand for him to pull this off. Oh, my gosh. What a story. Yeah. So let's get into some of the details, because you've obviously mm-hmm. done tremendous research on this story, and you've written it as a historic novel, which I think is just great, because as we talked mm-hmm. about in the first segment, that's kind of how you fill in some of the gaps that you're just never going to mm-hmm. know. What were the conversations? Right. What were the relationships? Things like that you can kind of fill in. So do you have the court files from all this? I do. I have quite a bit of documentation, a bunch of uh, documents that my dad had that he passed over to me. There is documentation that details the trial of my great-grandmother, the trial of Frank Oliasiski. I have all the pleas. Uh, They originally charged both of them with first-degree murder. Then they pled it down. Oliasiski went to prison for 20 years for second-degree murder. My great-grandmother went to prison for manslaughter. She got, uh, I think, five to ten years, and she served three. And so this is why your grandfather and his siblings all wound up in the orphanage. Was there ever a reunion? Yes, they did. Once my great-grandmother had gotten out of prison, she was with her sister in Lisbon, and they did. They reunited. That's all detailed in the book, um, the reunion. Now, this is tough, because I want to talk about your grandfather now. He was just a kid. How old was he? Twelve? He he was twelve going on thirteen. So, yeah, he was just a young kid, and it's like, you know... I'm trying to imagine putting myself in his head and and thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, my mother is gone and my father is dead. Yeah. And my siblings are in this this horrible place. (laughs) Yeah, but he's getting into bootlegging in Chicago during the gangster era of the 20s. Right. Right, because he's looking to make as as much money as he can with the idea and the purpose of going back and stealing his siblings out of that orphanage and taking care of them himself. That's incredible. But did he come through this period of his life? That's a very impressionable age, obviously, going into your teens. Was he able to walk away from it ultimately once he'd achieved his goal? You know, it, it, it definitely had an effect on him because later on, I mean, he started to kind of go down that same road as he, as he got a little bit older. And as the story moves on, he goes to Canton after he's left his siblings with his mother. He meets my grandmother, who's a fiery Irish woman, and he actually buys a bar, a speakeasy bar, with the idea to take care of his new fiance. And, right. You know, and, uh, he knows and so the he business, gets, after all. <laughs> yeah. He kind of goes down the road a little bit of his dad with the whiskey and such, and, and my grandmother kind of pulls him out of that and kind of saves him. So the last part of the book is a, their love story. and. My wife says that's her, her favorite part. She loved the whole book. She goes, that's my favorite part, though. The love story was great between your grandparents. Because it's obvious that uh, he really was the patriarch of your family and the one that everybody looked up to, and he would do anything for them, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was that sort of person. Everybody looked to him for things. And, and my great-uncle, Frank, when my granddad passed away, Frank's like, you know, I don't, I don't even want to live no more. What's the purpose of living now sure. without Stan? because they just looked to him 
for everything, you know, so. He was the guy. Yeah. I've got a lot of information and a lot of background information on a website I actually created for this called heartofsteelbook.com. There's more stories and more information up there. Well, you know, the thing about it is, of course, for people who listen to this show, they're either just getting started in genealogy, maybe they're more established, but it's always interesting to hear what kind of records you found, how you went out to gather these stories. And obviously, there were people who knew a few things. Is there anybody left who, once they found out that you knew, spilled their guts about some of these times? Yes, there was some. Now, because my dad's cousins, the daughter of my Aunt Dorothy, who was the oldest of the children who mm-hmm. was abused, she sent him a letter, actually. And I actually got some good information because he handed me the letter that she had handwritten to him. Because she seemed to know a lot about this story from her mother. And I pulled a lot of stuff out of there. A lot of the, the, the stories of the incidences of her being abused, you know, are in the book. And I pulled them from a letter. So they're actual incidences that really did occur. So I learned a lot from that based on the story. And, and just talking to other relatives that, you know, somebody knew a little bit. Like this cousin would know a little bit about that. And, you know, and the children of my great uncle Frank, my granddad's younger brother, they had some knowledge of things, but they kept it hush. I mean, they swore yeah. an oath of silence in 1921 that we're changing our name to Miller, and we're Miller, and we're not going to tell this to our children or grandchildren. And my grandfather took it to his grave. Wow. So it took a lot of research to figure out why, you know, scouring these newspaper articles, scouring the court documents of the case, looking at old letters that were written and just finding the property. We even went to St. Mary's Cemetery trying to find George Pahalski's gravesite, my great-grandfather. We knew it was in St. Mary's uh, right. Cemetery in Warren, Ohio, but we didn't know exactly where. So Any was, sign uh, of him? The records were kept in St. Mary's Catholic Church, and we found him in the records there, but we could not locate the gravesite. Yeah. We don't know if it's an unmarked grave or if the sandstone's been worn since 1920. Sure. So that was one thing we weren't able to wow. do. We just didn't know exactly where he was. Well, um, it, it sounds like an amazing book. It is Heart of Steel. It's by my guest, Kevin Miller. And uh, Kevin, congratulations on doing that. I, I would imagine you haven't written books before. No, um, I, I'm my professional job as a, as a web developer, I'm also a technical writer, so I'm used to writing, but writing a novel is, it, it doesn't always translate. <laughs> writing a novel is a whole different That's thing. It's a whole so different animal. But, but congratulations yeah. on trying something out of your comfort zone to make sure that story lives on for generations. And boy, you've gone through it all. Court records, oral tradition, digitized newspapers, and you've really uncovered some amazing secrets. Congratulations. Thanks so much for your time, Kevin. Thank you, Fisher. I appreciate it. And coming up next, as you probably know by now, we're into season six of BYU TV's Relative Race. And episode four just aired this past weekend. And we've got Team Black in studio to talk about the experience and all the things that they're learning, especially about J.D.'s family. And I'm excited to have new friends in the studio. (laughs) It's J.D. and Jen. They are Team Black this season, and uh, you guys were really just highlighted here on Episode 4 this past week. We had a good, good day that day. It was a fun week. Now, you guys are from Utah. We are from Utah. And where were you when you had this experience? You were in Denver, right? Denver, Denver, Colorado. Colorado. Denver. So you were not too far from uh, your home area there. And J.D., just tell everybody who you got to meet. Oh, it was a real pleasure. I got to meet my sister, Angie, in Denver and her family. And it was a phenomenal 
experience for us and an incredible day on the race. One of those moments that you treasure forever. <laughs> forever. <laughs> well, it, the emotion was just so strong. You can't watch that without having a, a whole pack of Kleenex exactly. standing by. And we lived it, but we still cried watching it. I bet. Yeah. Well, and, and isn't it interesting when you watch a TV show or anything that you video, the editing that's involved to make this thing all come together? Because I'm sure you remember how it was originally. Yes, it was a beautiful edit. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. was a beautiful experience, yes. but they edited it in such a way that it was just absolutely lovely. I had the great opportunity to have my sister come to our home and watch that show with us. Oh, so she was with and us and we sat on the couch. It was a and... tender mercy for sure. Wow. And she shares your dad with you, who you found out early on you lost. Correct. And she's been able to help me find a few of my dad's very best friends in high school and in life up until the point where he died. So they were able to fill J.D. in a little bit more on details and exactly where he gets all of the goodness in J.D. Did you get a picture, though? Of course, we haven't seen that (laughs) yet. I know. Are we allowed to say? I I think we might be allowed to say we do end up with a picture. Okay. And I'm going to tell you this, uh, Fisher. This picture that you see is remarkable. We are... twins (laughs) twins <laughs> how all the way down to that? our grandson wow like it's the genes wow. are very very strong isn't that something so it's how did you guys wind up on the show it's a fun story actually we'd never seen the show we'd never seen the show you know 12 years ago my grandmother had told me that my dad wasn't my biological father and i wasn't in a big hurry to find out who my biological father was i was pleased with my life and i was excited about where we were at and then i had a very interesting experience a year ago, where a strange man came up to me in a parking lot and told me that he had been speaking to my grandmother who had passed, which is always an interesting way to start a conversation. Right. And he said, listen, your grandmother wants you to know that it was a gift she gave you on Christmas, that finding your dad is going to be a gift. And so it started me wanting to go down that path and find my father. We didn't know about relative race. We did our DNA, no results. It was sort of a dead end. And our daughter called us. We're just not smart enough to figure out the DNA. (laughs) Well, I had 400 fourth cousins. I don't know know if there's a lot you can do with that. We had no idea where to go. Our daughter was watching TV and called us on the phone and said, Mom, you and Dad have got to do this show. And we basically put the ball in her court and said, if you figure it out, honey, We'll talk about it. And about three hours later, we had producers calling calling us. us. Wow. We feel like it was absolutely supposed to happen for us. Unbelievable. Wow. That is absolutely incredible. So we were five weeks from the day we found out to the day we were on a plane. Well, it's J.D. and Jen. It's Team Black from Relative Race. And, of course, uh, we're coming up on Episode 5 this weekend. Five more days to go after that. We'll see who winds up with the $50,000. Great to meet you guys. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much for dropping in. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. David Allen Lambert has returned for another segment of Ask Us Anything. How are you, David? I'm doing great. How about yourself? All right. Let's uh, get to the question from Millie in Lafayette, Indiana. She has emailed us, I'm having trouble locating a record of my great-great-grandfather's Civil War pension record. He lived long enough for me to believe he should have had one. The spelling of his last name is somewhat unusual, which I think may be why I can't find it on Ancestry. Is there any other way to search? Thanks. Good question, Millie. 
That's a really good question. Well, first off, Ancestry has the T288 index. Now, Fish, the T288 index was put together alphabetically, A to Z, for all of the Union forces. It's fine, but, you know, aliases and misspellings. It used to be hard because you had to do it by microphone. Ancestry does have the sound decks out there, so you could click that, and they might catch some of the misspellings. But there is another Ancestry option. That would be Fold3. Fold3, back when it was footnote.com, actually, I met with them and told them about another index that nobody had online yet. Ironically, it was to be a competition against Ancestry, they thought, but Ancestry now owns Fold3, and the T289 index is online now. Now, that index on Fold3 isn't alphabetical. It's regimental. It is organized by regiments, and this regimental index goes by state, the branch of the service, infantry, artillery, etc., the number of that unit, and then the company. Now, you can drill down a lot easier through 100-plus people in a company than you can through tens to thousands of Union veterans that may have a similar name. So if you use that index, chances are you'll see right away what pensions were given out for the members of that company, because that is a cross-index. And the reason they did this, Fish, is because saying you and I are in the Civil War together, all of a sudden I need to get a hold of Scott Fisher, and I'm going through all of these Scott Fishers. Well, which one served with David Lambert? Ah, this way you had it by the regiment so we could go and look and see we're in the same company so we know exactly who it is so we can ask for an affidavit from you so you can see if my reason for a pension was actually a pension-causing event during the war or if you could speak to my good character, etc. Right, right, right. So you could get an endorsement, basically, for your application for a pension. Oh, I like that. And, you know, the other thing about that, I would imagine, is you could see people who were maybe from the same town you were from, as it often worked out that way with many of the companies in the war, right? Or other family members that maybe you didn't know fought with your ancestor. That's true. I mean, that whole fan, family associates and neighbors come to play in pension files because those affidavits, which are often ignored by genealogists, they're like, oh, what's that? You know, whoopie do. But I always tell people to look for the pensions of those that gave the affidavits because if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And you might find a letter about your ancestor in their pension talking about a different battle that they may have not been injured at, but the colleague would have been. Yeah, that's right. And you can do that for the Revolution as well. You can. For the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Mexican War, Civil War, Spanish-American War, all of those wars have affidavits within the pension file itself. Wow. All right, David. Thank you so much. Thank you to you, Millie. And if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, all you have to do is email us at, get this, askusanything at extremegenes.com. Talk to you soon, David. Thanks. All right. See you. Hey, that is it for this week. Thanks once again to our guest, Kevin Miller, for coming on and talking about his book, Heart of Steel. Talk to you next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.